Did we just lose Sammy? Yeah, we lost Sammy. Uh, it's gone. <laughs> he just lived in the shadows. It's it's hard to get out of the shadows of everybody in front of him. Okay, everybody. Entering the 1997-98 NBA season, the Chicago Bulls had won five championships in the previous seven years. But as they sought their second three-peat, the future of the dynasty was in doubt. As preparations began for the 1997-98 season, Michael Jordan and the Bulls granted unprecedented access to a film crew for the entire year. As Jordan was preparing to conclude his time with the Bulls, three friends in Toronto were about to graduate from university. This is the story as seen through the ESPN Netflix docuseries, The Last Dance. My name is Sam Yunin. I typically host My Summer Lair, a pop culture podcast on Girth Radio. However, tonight, I'm welcoming you to the second episode of Jordan Ain't No Joke. My co-hosts are going to introduce themselves by openly sharing some pain. What's the Air Jordans you wish you owned? Which are the Air Jordan shoes that got away? Oh, I'll go first. So for me, um, I think it has to be the Jordan 5s uh, in the black and red. Uh, those uh, were the ones to me that were just like something I'd never seen before in footwear. And uh, I did not ever get those, uh, but I did save up enough money uh, to get the next pair that came out, which were the Jordan 6s. And I worked all summer. And, you know, I guess this was the, uh, this would have been the 90s, early 90s. So I worked all summer to, and blew all of that money on those Jordan 6s. <laughs> you remember how much they cost? Oh, there was two bills for sure. Right. Yeah, at least two. Oh, yes, I, I, I'm Jagar, and, uh, and uh, that is my shoe pick. Hi, I'm Denny, and uh, the one that got away from me is a little later down the road is the Jordan 20s. Uh, that was just a good, like, graffiti-inspired mashup, 20-year mm -hmm. celebration of uh, MJ. And um, yeah. That was the one with all the images of his, like, whole career. Yeah, it had, like, just, it was, there's this one big strap that goes over where the shoelaces are, and uh, on that, it's just, like, little kind of, little kind of like icons and little graffiti style images of all sorts of things that that were all about his 20 years yeah i, I think i'd have to add that to my list as well i totally forgot about those yeah those yeah. were those were something else those yeah. i mean those i think it's safe to say those pair of shoes the Jordan 20s were a work of art i mean you could just buy a pair of those and put them in a glass case and i'd be happy completely and i remember sitting i was on young street i was in Foot Locker walked in and I was surprised to see them in the store. And I think at that time it was going for like 170. And I was like, hmm, stared at it for a long time. Like, okay, I'll come back for it. And then they were gone. Okay. <laughs> Regrets. <laughs> I have a few. What were you, Sam? My, the ones I always wanted were the Air Jordan 4s. The 4s were the just the classic. Right. 
I think that was when the line really kind of started to take off as well. Like people, like I know number ones got banned and all that, but by the time you get into threes and fours, and Tinker starting to put his like spin on everything, it kind of took off after yeah, that. Yeah, threes was my first pair, and that was like that was completely mind blowing for most people because there's no swoosh on it whatsoever. Oh, sorry. Well, at least not in the not on the side of the shoe. Okay, so we're going from shoebox love to. Uh, some hate. Where do you want to start in episode three? Hate for the bad boys, Dennis Rodman, Doug Collins's perm. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I mean, first I just have to say like, wow. I mean, that episode three and four were like everything that I was hoping this, this series was going to be. This is what you paid admission for. Yeah, absolutely. Like this was the episode where they got into all the dirty nitty gritty stuff. There were F-bombs being thrown left and right by, <laughs> by Jordan and, and, and others. Uh, I mean, even even Horace Grant was like, <laughs> you, I, mean, I mean, granted, the, the Pistons of that era bring the worst out in everybody. I mean, I have vivid memories of pure, unadulterated hate for that team. Lambeer in, in particular, I just could not stand. And so I can see and understand the seething hate to this day that you could see coming out of those bulls. Um, so it was amazing to watch. And, and we'll, I'm sure we'll get into more of that. But uh, yeah, I think if, if we're going to move from shoebox love to uh, hate, uh, the Pistons are a good place to start. The Lambeer deserves a nice wooden chair across the back. Like, she's <laughs> one of those people that were like, there's only a handful of people in life where like, I don't know how else to respond to you except to dash a wooden chair across your back. That's the only like visceral response that he generates. Oh, for sure. I mean, he was just uh, next level dirty. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and he like a true villain, and he played that part like to perfection. It, but it's it's when you watch back in those days, you couldn't appreciate it because the guy was so smug. He wasn't very like. Um, there was nothing particularly athletic about the guy and nothing spectacular. But if you watch again now as, you know, somebody who has more appreciation for the game, he did a lot of good things for that team, just scoring wise and rebounds. So then that brings up a question then. Are the are the Pistons kind of underrated? I mean, we were talking about this last time where like, did you appreciate Pippen in real time? Like, now that we've had some time, the hate is still there. Hate is always going to be there. But are the Pistons better appreciated for what they contributed to the NBA? They did win two championships. I think for those people who who were really watching back in those days or who kind of remember those days, it's hard to forget them. I mean, like you knew all the guys. Buddha Edwards, Microwave Johnson, um, Long Tall Sally. Like, you knew all their nicknames. Those guys are just like... Even though they were weren't necessarily always spectacular dudes, they were like getting shit done, like mm -hmm. microwave. And Joe Dumars was just kicking ass left and right. He was holding his own so well yeah. against Jordan. So I mean, I guess maybe in yeah, in over time they've been forgotten. But um, I think people who really love basketball appreciate the Pistons still, even though they were like dirty as shit. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think it was the dirty part in the, in the lack of sportsmanship that, you know, that I could certainly tell the Jordan 
uh, couldn't stand was this that lack of sportsmanship. Uh, it's one thing to be a tough team. I mean, it, it was amazing the tactic that they took of just, I think uh, someone mentioned, I think it was Sally or someone who mentioned it in the documentary where he's like, our job was to just throw people off their rhythm and just never let them get into a rhythm. And uh, they executed that. And so there's, you got to respect that. And then, you know, even, you know, there was a point where despite the team as a whole having the reputation that they did, you couldn't deny uh, even Isaiah Thomas and oh, yeah, sure. what, a, what a great player he was and what a great story he had just on a personal level. Um, I, I, did, I remember there was like a movie of the week kind of something like that that was made yeah. about his life that I remember loving as a kid. Um, and so, you know, we are watching this uh, through the point of view of the Chicago Bulls. Um, but uh, it still doesn't take away from just how dirty they are. <laughs> yeah, I think too that that's a a key point because when Isaiah was drafted, I think it was in eighty one or eighty two, he did not want to go to Detroit. Nobody wanted to go to Detroit at that time. Mm. It was like the Sacramento Kings of like today or something. And he he was drafted second, and he was hoping to fall sixth because sixth was the Chicago pick. He's from Chicago. And so he tried to throw the interview and everything off when he interviewed with the Pistons. And then the, the general manager was like, man, I don't care about you. I'm taking you anyways. <laughs> right. So he, they, he got drafted second and Orlando Woolridge got drafted sixth that same draft for Ooh. the Bulls, which kind of worked out a little bit, I guess. But um, the point, though, I was always thought kind of like we don't really talk about with Isaiah is that he then came and did to the Pistons what Jordan did for the Bulls. We kind of talked about this last time, where the Bulls didn't really have this noble history like the Celtics and the Lakers. And so Isaiah did for the Pistons what Jordan did for the Bulls, but I think Isaiah always wanted to do it for Chicago Bulls. You know what I mean? So when he got hated on, he was even hated in Chicago, his own hometown. Jordan got the love. Isaiah never got the love. Yeah, that's a good point. I I totally I totally forgotten that he was a he was a Chicago native, and um, so yeah, that adds a completely different dimension to that whole rivalry. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a great point. I totally forgotten about that. Lambeer is also from Chicago too. I didn't know it was Chicago. I know he came from like a really well-to-do family. Yeah, that's made made him even worse. <laughs> At least with like some NBA players, you know what I mean? They're trying to boots bootstrap themselves up and like hustle and like they're going hungry sometimes. They have those stories. Lambeer is like, "Yo, we had a boat." Yeah. Wow, I I didn't realize that about Lambeer. It's it's really like uh, Isaiah's really because a polarizing dude because you can kind of understand where he's coming from. You know, growing up in the projects in the in the West Side. And having a really rough upbringing, and then you become this sort of like um, the, quite the opposite of that. Once you became like a public figure, big smile, sweet guy, seems really well spoken, really nice. But then when it came down to the game, it got to the point where it was it wasn't that he was ultra competitive, but there was like a kind of a, there's there seemed to be a lot of dirty tactics that he he just did <laughs> business about. He didn't mm -hmm. care. And that's, I think that's where he kind of crossed that line from, you know, being in that realm with Bird and Magic, even though as a player, you can appreciate him, but people knew too much of the dirty kind of tactics from behind the scenes. That, that's why I think that's part of the reason why he didn't get on the dream team. 
Do you think the Dream Team snub was justified or do you think he deserved to be on there? You can kind of look at it both ways, right? You can right, yeah. from a player standpoint, yes, of course he deserved to be there. But from a like, if they brought him in, would Jordan, Magic, Bird have been more hesitant to come in? Probably, maybe. Like, I think Jordan was hesitant to, to do it in the first place. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, do you want those three guys or do you want Isaiah? <laughs> so, And I mean, it also would have potentially messed up the chemistry there too, right? I mean, as tough competitors as Bird and, and Magic were and, and you know, Jordan, I, I think there wasn't that level of hate that there was with, you know, Detroit. Mm-hmm. Well, but well, Magic and, and uh, Isaiah were like close, close, close buddies. They would kiss each other when they'd face, face off. I don't know the exact story of why they parted ways. There was, I think there's some rumors about Isaiah would talk behind his back a lot, maybe question his sexuality. Uh, and then when Magic was, had HIV, you know, he was sort of like standoffish on him. But um, yeah, so I don't know. I, I think you heard a lot of people. There's a whole documentary there. Yes, yeah. There is. So where do you guys stand with the uh, the whole like walking out of the game and not shaking hands? That was a big controversial point now because I got relitigated now. It did, and you know I don't know. I have to say Jordan seemed to have called him out on it pretty hard. But you know Isaiah made I think one interesting point uh, where that I think they something similar had happened with the Celtics. But at the end of the day, I mean I think Jordan made the right call when he says, well he's gonna. Of course, he's going to change his mind now because he's going to bow to public pressure and with the time that's gone by. For Isaiah, I mean, I feel like he's kind of, you know, he admits that it, it was not the best decision. So, um, but it was not a good look uh, back then, that's for sure. I mean, it also boils down to, too, when uh, Detroit eliminated those guys like a few times prior to the 91 season, Jordan would always like, but yo, okay, you guys won, shake your hand, right? And that's, at the end of the day, that's where you kind of show it's no hard feelings, right? You leave it on the court. Yeah, and that's where Jordan, I think, again, shows that, uh, and Jordan's memory is pretty amazing because he was like, oh, all you have to do is go back and look at the, the previous mm-hmm. year. And uh, they, of course, they cut back to it and the footage was there. Well, the bitterness never goes away. <laughs> no, that... No, you could, that's the amazing thing. You could see the change in Jordan's demeanor and his face mm-hmm. when, when he's talking about it. And he's like, no, it's still here. I still yeah. hate him. This, I think episode three especially was great because Jordan was the most unvarnished we've ever seen him. Like that was almost like we were hanging out in the locker room or something. Mm. We never get that Jordan. That's the Jordan that we like though. Oh, for sure. And I also think that particular part of the interview, so they obviously did a couple of different interviews with Jordan. Uh, so, he, yeah, there's a blue shirt one, and then there's that one where he's wearing cargo shorts or something like that. <laughs> so retired. But the one where he's in that living with the big bay windows, in the earlier episode uh, episodes, it was daylight. And by the time I think they started talking about the Pistons, I think his drink had gotten, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> Halfway to the halfway point, or maybe near the bottom, and then uh, the, it was like dark outside. So they'd been there a while, and I think he was really ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> while they were battling the Pistons, of course, 
the Bulls had Doug Collins. And I want to bring up, too, Denny, a point you brought up last time where, like, you said you were kind of, um, I don't know what the word is, like, not frustrated, but, like, you felt they were kind of compressing a bit too much with the timeline. And I felt this episode, too, when they were talking about Doug Collins. Right. Like, uh, like Doug Collins has that little montage where he's like, the Jordan I coached, like, won the dunk contest and was MVP. And he listed, like, three or four accomplishments. Mm-hmm. But I'm like... You can't just gloss over the the dunk contest with like Dominique and stuff like that. That those were some epic battles too. They were, yeah. And that, I mean, that was a those three years that he coached the Bulls, yeah. right? From from episode three, I think one of the greater kind of little snippets was when Collins was talking about his uh, first game against the Knicks, and then my yeah. man was like all sweaty and chewed his gum <laughs> out until he's got got like all that powder on his face, and Jordan just gave him that drink, like drink this water clean that stuff off your mouth. I'm not going to let you lose your first game. Like <laughs> that's the player saying that to the coach. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think he was a rookie Amazing. coach at that point, but like, still it's like, okay, well, that's the man who, that's the kind of dude Jordan was like. But it also speaks to Jordan's like ability to like, we're going to do this. I'm going to impose my will yeah. on the Knicks. Jordan, even at that point, he hadn't won a championship yet. Nope. But he's like, I know I can do this. I can impose my will. We're going to do this. <laughs> and he scored 50. And yeah. that was the most points by an opponent in the MSG at that point. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I think that's what they mentioned that in the uh, in that montage. Um, and, you know, I, I think Collins was the right coach for Jordan at that time. I, I, you know, the, the episode is does a great job of contrasting uh, Collins and Jackson. You know, Collins was like, whatever the play is, get the ball to Mike. And and Jackson was the opposite. He's like, no, we got to get the ball to the right person. Or, you know, that we got to spread this around. And I'm sure we'll get into that with the triangle offense and what have you. But it's, it's amazing um, structurally um, how they were able to sort of tease that out in the documentary. Let's continue the theme of hate because... In the first episode we recorded, there was a lot of hate for Jerry Krause. But Krause did hire Doug Collins. He did hire Phil Jackson. He did hire Tex Winter. He picked Pippen. He picked Grant. Right. So it's like, as an architect, he was really good. It was just, as a demolition expert, he was terrible. (laughs) When you look back at some of the moves that Krause is making... And, like, even getting rid of Doug Collins. I mean, we just saw this recently about a year ago with the Raptors when Dwayne Casey had won Coach of the Year. And they were like, well, that's a good job, Dwayne. Here's the banker's box. See you later. So it's like, do you, do you have any more admiration or is there still hate for Kraus for his efforts? Well, I mean, I think it's, it was never really truly hate. I mean, I think it was like... Contempt? You know, he he obviously comes off as kind of shifty-eyed and like you know, in it for only one reason. But it, to me, it seems like you can't deny those decision good decisions he made. At the end of the day, it seems like it just came down to a battle of personalities. It was kind of like, you know, he wanted to be one of the cool kids and he just wasn't, <laughs> and they didn't want him to be one of the cool kids and it's pretty the one the one moment that made me laugh out loud in the uh episode was i think this was episode three was episode three when they won the first championship or was that episode four when he's dancing on the airplane four 
yeah, the dancing on the airplane, exactly. I just, it was like, okay, all right, looks like he's getting along. And then right at the end of it, Pippin's like, get him out of here. <laughs> he took it too far, man. <laughs> took it too far. Sit down, so Jerry. It, 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 sit down, Jerry. <laughs> so it kind of felt like it, ultimately what may have happened was that um, it became, uh, and, it, and it kind of harkens back to the first episode where they talk about him having a, the little man complex. And, uh, and then these, these personalities just not meshing. And I think it probably made him get, you know, got the better of him. Um, and he started making these really crazy decisions. I mean, you know, it's one thing to make a business decision, but then to say, go to the press and talk about, you know, this being, you know, Phil Jackson's last year, no matter what happens. I mean, that's just, that to me seems personal and not a business decision. Yeah, I want to see more too of how, um, like, like you said, Jig, like it's personal. Like, there obviously was a lot of love to get Phil in and like to make sure that Phil was part of the team and to like there was a lot, lot of love at the beginning. And I want to see them kind of tease and get a little bit more into how everything kind of fell out. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I mean, and it's not. It wasn't just like with Phil Jackson. He tried, uh, I think, a couple times to get Phil into the mm-hmm. organization. The first time uh, it didn't go so well because you know. Phil came in, you know, dressed like a hippie or whatever. And then uh, the second time around, uh, he was like, okay, I, you, I'm going to tell you how to dress. You're going to come in and, and you're going to present yourself a certain way. Uh, so it wasn't like Krauss didn't like Jackson. I mean, he tried very hard to get him in, onto the team. And, and, you know, thankfully he did. Well, see, here, here's a couple of conclusions. Well, here's a conclusion we can come to thus far with, with these four episodes. On the one hand, yeah, you can say he was a great architect because he he definitely had a nose for players. But then right from the beginning, in I think it was episode one, when they're talking to Jerry Reinstorf, he said that, you know, when he first wanted to hire Jerry Krause, people were saying, like, you'll stay away from that dude. <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. so he so you can get a sense that he is a guy who has a good eye for players, but he has also a certain kind of personality that is hard to deal with. And it's just a, it's a bad mixture when you're like part, you kind of, you kind of help build a team that is amazing, but you have all these amazing personalities on that team that, you know, Jerry's going to be on the bottom of the totem pole to get credit. Jordan, Phil, uh, Pippen, all those guys are just fighting for credit. Well, all, all fighting under Jordan's shadow. But like, there's no way Krauss is going to make any kind of like, um, any, get any recognition, you know, especially with the kind of, kind of mixed up personality that he had. Yeah, I think it needed, a, uh, you know, Krauss was a good strategist and technici- tactician maybe, but he didn't necessarily have a delicate touch, which is what I think maybe was required but if he just lived in the shadows it's, it's hard to get out of the shadows of everybody in front of him it's not like like masai jury today who gets a lot well mind you masai is not working with like superstars anyways that's a different story it's a different story yeah but no but to your point like you know because he cast such a um because jordan cast such a long shadow um for Krauss to feel, you know, that he was getting credit, it was asking a lot. And so you need a personality that's 
you know, able to work behind the scenes and not have the ego that needs to be stroked at the same time. Yeah. But uh, I did want to talk about the, the man that uh, the episode's primarily about is uh, none other than Mr. Dennis Rodman. Uh, what an amazing uh, character and player uh, that, he, that, he, that he was. Um, it's, it starts out really well. I mean, I love that, um, you know, they gave him so much attention. Uh, and it's crazy what a story he has. I think it's it's hard it's hard for people to remember just how much he did with the Pistons. Um, it's uh, and, and it's incredible how in the beginning he talks about. I think I was just going to quote the opening line here: "Is that you know I could have been a bomb, I could have been in jail, I could have been dead, but I worked my ass off to get here. I created this monster." And later in the episode, um, when people are talking about the young Dennis Rodman. He's just this kid, country kid, innocent, naive. And, and then Rodman says, yeah, I created, I created this in, in uh, Detroit. It's amazing what that city did to people. It seems like they just created you know, monsters after monsters, but, um, but very talented and, and, and you, know, you know, great players nonetheless. It's kind of like with Rodman. It's like, where do you begin? There's so many amazing things about the guy and i know there are documentary there is at least one documentary about him but i haven't been able to watch it two two there's technically two because there's the bad boys 30 for 30 yeah and then there's the rodman solo documentary right well yeah i, I just meant kind of really more about him and his upbringing and how he got to where he got but i mean it's it's just really yeah, like i said it's hard to begin it's just just as a as a observer of the game how how astute he was in in terms of like studying people's shots, um, how you know how their balls would spin, and you know how to kind of anticipate the the rebound for their shots. That's like that's crazy, amazing. Oh yeah, that 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 was one moment that really struck me. That I was like, you never he never gets a chance to talk about that part of his game, uh, and people don't give him enough credit for that. But he was a real student of individual players, and uh, I loved hearing that sort of you know, you know, that part of his uh, training and how he was obsessive about it. And he was always wanting to be where the ball was going to be. And he figured out um, how to do that like nobody else. I like, too, the balance between, like, he's a party animal, but he's also, like, doing the work. Like, it's a weird dichotomy. We're used to now, like, NBA players thinking about, like, nutrition and getting eight hours of sleep and doing all these things. And, like, towards the end of that third episode, Rodman's, like, uh, doing kamikazes and, like, drinking beer. And, like, he's clearly not getting his eight hours of sleep. But then Jordan tells that story of, like, when Rodman does come back from vacation, he's like, man, we had to go easy on him in the practice. Because it's like Rodman was all, like, probably drunk and whatever. And he's running laps around the team. Like, and Jordan was like, all right, I guess I apologize. Like, they, the Bulls eventually figured out that balance of, like, if we give Rodman space, he will deliver, and like that, that arrangement is incredible. Well, that that credit goes to to Phil Jackson, and and I think to uh, Michael Jordan too. But uh, you know, mm-hmm. he, you know, clearly saw what what uh, Rodman needed, and I think he gave him a lot more rope than he would have given any of the other players. 
um, because Rodman was delivering. Because when he showed up, he showed up and he was there. And and to your point about the that Indian drill, I mean that that's crazy. I mean I'm sure he was hungover. <laughs> uh, so uh, that just speaks to the man's athleticism. And I don't know. There's so much of that. Like Denny was saying, like it, yeah, there could be an entire series about Rodman and, and his psyche. Um, but uh, there are, I just can't imagine anyone doing that today. And just the way he played too, just the fact that he was willing to forego like points. Generally, he didn't get a lot of points. He gets some tip-ins and things like that. But like he understood his role perfectly and he was willing to execute it. And players today now, there's so many different arguments about like diminished roles or time or I want the ball, all these things. Rodman's like, look, I'm coming here. I'm going to do this. That's it. You take it or you leave it. And that's, I mean, that's what a great basketball team needs. It doesn't need, you know, five franchise players. It needs guys who are willing to do the dirty work and understand their place on the team um, without that ego of being number one. Um, And that, I think, to this day is maybe what might have been one of the greatest things about that Chicago Bulls team is that Phil Jackson was able to say, figure out a way to get these guys to accept their place on the team. And um, that did wonders. I mean, look at someone like Scottie Pippen on any other team um, would have been the number one guy. Uh, But uh, when you're playing with Michael Jordan, you have to accept that you're number two and you have a job. And as long as you do that job, the team wins. Yeah. it's, It's like a culture of just fill in the gaps, right? Make it balanced. And, you get you get results. Were you shocked at all? Because we started this episode talking about how much we hate the Pistons, and the Pistons did earn the hate. But I, I think for Jordan and less so Pippen, but Jordan specifically, he liked winning more than he liked hate. <laughs> so I think it, it's kind of a testimony to Jordan as well. If we bring in Dennis Rodman, he can help us win championships or win games. Will you guys accept him? And they're like, "Yep." Well, and they also got a pretty good taste of Dennis Rodman, <laughs> you know, playing the the Pistons all those uh, all those years, um, and so they knew exactly what he was capable of, and that that they they could use it. And it, and the one thing, I mean, I think the the credit for Rodman doesn't really go to Kraus because Kraus didn't want anything to do with mm. them, right? It was a Jim Stack that was really advocating to the assistant GM, the assistant GM uh, really advocating for Rodman. And, you know, thankfully uh, they made that happen, but Kraus wanted nothing to do with him. You know, I believe he, he's quoted directly there. Yeah. The assistant coach for the Pistons, he was saying how Chuck Daly said, leave Rodman to me. This is when Rodman was still on the Pistons. And he's like, you don't put a saddle on a Mustang. That's right. And that, that was the mistake that the Spurs made uh, when Rodman got traded there. They tried to control him and like, this is how we do things here. And Rodman's like, I don't care how you do things here, <laughs> right? Uh, like, well, this is how I do things. It's amazing. Like even when uh, Phil Jackson meets uh, Rodman for the first time at Jerry Krause's house and, you know, Jackson talks about how terrible that first meeting was. He's like, I walk into Krause's house. I mean, he's just sitting there on the couch, doesn't stand up to greet me. He's wearing a, one of those crazy hats. And Jax is like, do you want to play for the Chicago Bulls? And he's like, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) 
so and then you know to Jax's credit he's like all right we'll take that hat off and let's go take a walk uh and then you know that that whole relationship there is just fascinating yeah and um what I what was amazing was you know I wasn't too uh well versed on Jackson's early history but it's amazing how the the documentary found that sort of commonality between the two of them how you know Phil Jackson in, in back in the day as a player was kind of you know Dennis Rodman light and mm-hmm. and and so Jackson was able to see that in him and he knew how to sort of manipulate that and and you know he he became a, another father figure for uh, Rodman as just like Chuck Daly was before that. One of the criticisms I hate with Phil Jackson is that people are like, he only won championships because he had Jordan or because he had Kobe, which I, it's a stupid argument. Like how are you supposed to, like you can't win with Will Perdue as your main person. Like you need, it's a league of superstars. And what, what this documentary really shows, especially episodes three and four was the, the personalities that Phil Jackson was juggling, right? Jordan was pretty straightforward in terms of basketball. Like, he knew how to win games. Like, we talked about the Doug Collins uh, incident, right? In Madison Square Garden, he's like, don't worry, coach. I got this. I can win the game. But Phil Jackson's biggest strength was, like, managing those personalities. Rodman's a crazy personality. Jordan's a crazy personality. And just dealing with those two guys alone, you're exhausted at the end of the day. You don't have time (laughs) to drop, like, a play in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and I, I would say that uh, in in some ways, uh, aside from you know the triangle offense, uh, these guys invented uh, load management. But except it was with Vegas, <laughs> you just load management with Carmen Electra. Exactly. <laughs> just to send them out to Vegas for a few days or a week or whatever it was. Like that whole part could have just been a documentary on its own. Oh yeah, the, the... forty-eight hours, and then Jordan <laughs> finding him. <laughs> But I think the the story really goes is that he did come back after 48 hours. He came back to Chicago, but so he knocked on his door in his Chicago apartment. But like it, it was a little ambiguous in the documentaries. A lot of people kind of assumed well, Jordan showed up in Vegas. Right. Well, I think there's a there's been a recent interview with the director, and he sort of fleshed it out. Uh, he basically talked about yeah, it was because uh, Rodman I think had a place just across from the the stadium, so he wasn't like he was far yeah. uh, at that point. But Jordan showed up. Carmen Electra freaks out. She's like, um, I got to get out of here. She disappears behind a couch or something, and apparently Jordan literally pulled Rodman by a, his nose ring. <laughs> out of that room and and to practice uh which is what a story i mean come on like (laughs) i want to stay with phil jackson but before we continue down this road with phil jackson we have to do one more doug collins moment which was the cleveland shot because we Mm. haven't really talked about this (laughs) and that that whole scene was incredible. That the way they shot it, the way they organized it, the way they talked about it, and um, <laughs> what's my favorite part was modern Jordan when he's retelling the story. He's like, "We're coming out of the timeout, whatever." They put Craig Elo on me, and he does this big smile, <laughs> like he he knows, like it's over now. I the game's done. Oh yeah, and and uh, and not only that with it with the interview. Um... Uh, Harper, uh, Harper is just like that was some 
fucking bullshit. He's just still, he could, <laughs> there was still a bad taste in his mouth. And uh, like, this is where you need the DVD commentary or the extra scenes. It's like, okay, what was Lenny Wilkins thinking? Why did he put Elo on him? Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's so many great nuggets from that moment. Uh, like the whole the whole thing about when they went to Game Five of Cleveland and Jordan went up to all the Chicago beat writers. It's yeah. like we took care of you, we took care of you, and tonight we take care of you. Yeah, amazing. I love that story. And even now, he even modern Jordan when he was doing the interview, he's like, "Yo, man, if you ain't with us, get out. I don't business with you." Like, yeah. Even now, the anger is still there. Like, why did you doubt me? Yeah. But I mean, that's just his nature, I guess, throughout. It doesn't matter, like, when and where, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was it was a nice, also nice little nugget just to know what he was actually saying when he was pumping his fist when he made that shot in Cleveland. Yeah. Like, fuck you, all, all you going to hell. <laughs> go, go home, motherfuckers. That's, yeah. I believe his line. <laughs> go home, motherfuckers. <laughs> oh, man. And, you know, the thing, too, what I find amazing about that Cleveland shot was... In the first couple of episodes, they talked about the uh, University of North Carolina shot. Like, Jordan is known for the shots already. Like, those are two huge, iconic shots that have, like, cemented his career. A lot of times when guys come in as, like, dunkers or they're known for being, like, in the air, like, uh, what's, like, Blake Griffin, for example, Sean Kemp is another one. Like, they don't really ever develop, like, a threatening shot or, like, a really big offense in that sense. But Jordan was already established. Like, it really does cement what all the GMs and other people were saying around him that this guy was really good. It, it's really, um, it's, it's funny just throughout the years, you just hear so many different things. Cause that's always kind of been the, the common narrative was, well, Jordan didn't have a shot. He didn't have a shot. But yeah. then if you actually watch back to those games, even his rookie year, like, he had a pretty good shot and he was shooting a, a good percentage. So I don't know if people were just maybe too dazzled by his ability to get into the lane, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, it was like, there's a lot of double clutch shots. I like who does a better double clutch shot than Jordan. As Hubie Brown would say high percentage shots. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's funny. Yeah. Although Jordan was very clear in this, in these uh, episodes, one shot that he did not like was Bill Cartwright's shot. <laughs> did he say that? Oh yeah. So he goes, because I think that when Jackson was trying to get the ball to other people and trying to implement the uh, triangle offense, uh, you know, Michael Jordan was like, uh, well, you know, that's fine, but I don't want Bill Cartwright to have the shot when there's five seconds left on the clock. Sure. No, yeah. I, I mean, I, I took that as obviously like, well, if anybody's going to take the shot when the clock's winding down, it's me. But I, th- I thought Sammy was talking about just like um, Jordan commenting how ugly Cartwright shot was. Oh no! <laughs> oh yeah! Oh yeah! I totally forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, was elbows out, man. <laughs> the elbows. Yeah, I think he had like tendonitis at like twenty, man. Such a weird shot. Yeah. It's actually funny that you mentioned Cartwright because when I saw him appear in the dock, like I, the first thing that popped into my mind was he looks great. Yeah. He looks younger than he did back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I know. And Horace Grant looks good too. Yeah. yeah, he's, you know, I was going to say the same thing. Horace Grant, Horace Grant still looks like he's in, in great shape. Yeah, Jed, Jed Bushler, even Will Perdue. I was like, whoa, Will's like, like not, not everybody took that Stacey King route. <laughs> yeah. uh, Jed Bushler, too, looks like he just like eats avocado toast and like. Yeah, man. <laughs> he looks like he lives in <laughs> He's Pato like barefoot in the office. And... <laughs> yeah, right? Like, 
was like, oh man. And BJ Armstrong still looks like a baby. Yeah, he yeah. does. Yeah, he's an agent now in the NBA, so he's running players. So he's Derek Rose's agent, right? Yeah. Does it bother you or make you happy that we haven't seen Tony Kukoc yet, like at all? It bothers me a bit, but hopefully that's coming up. Maybe connecting with the the dream team stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, he was a you know he was a pivotal player pivotal, for them for sure. Do we want to talk about the music at one point as well? Yeah, let's talk about the music now. Okay. So this episode, uh, these two episodes, uh, again, uh, a great use of, uh, of needle drop music. Uh, they had some really great montages. They've done, I, I mean, I could watch all the monta- montages uh, in this documentary on a loop. Uh, they've done some fantastic ones in episode one and two. Uh, and this one was no exception. They, um, they had uh, the Prince Party Man. Mm-hmm. Um, off the uh, Batman soundtrack, which was phenomenal. Um, and, uh, of course, there was the Beastie Boys, the maestro for, I think, the uh, Rodman uh, yeah. montage. Mm-hmm. Just great, great use of, uh, of, of, those, of those tracks and the lyrics as well. They've cut, they cut the lyrics in just the right parts and just right the moment, moments. And uh, that's the, those kind of touches are really what make some, you know, a, a piece of work like this thing you know uh and so it was just great to see how they did that and the, and the comparison to prince is is interesting too you know he he passed you know a few i guess four years or now four years ago now yeah, 2016 i think yeah and uh the one thing that we i think we kind of touched on this last episode is, is jordan was kind of like a kind of like a band leader and, and, and he was kind of an unforgiving band leader in the same realm as say you know james brown and and prince and it was sort of like you know if your job if you're there you're you're there to do a job and if you mess that up then you're going to hear about it and uh you know prince and guys like james brown always had a reputation i think james brown had like a a jar where you make a mistake a mistake jar or something and you'd have to drop a 20 in there <laughs> and uh and prince uh was known to be a taskmaster as well there's this great story of wendy from the uh, revolution they were rehearsing and her whole job for this one song was to hold down one note and they'd been doing it over and over and over again and she got to the point where she just got bored so she was reading a comic book while holding down this one note and prince just stopped the rehearsal and, and read her the right act and you kind of see that from michael jordan in, in, in those practice sessions uh where he's just unrelenting and uh, so it's great how they sort of manage to pull in just the right music cues for this uh, this uh for these montages i find that the music doesn't get enough um credit like we've done now like four episodes we're more or less halfway i know it's 10 episodes but the next couple episodes will be five and six but we're halfway and I know people are talking about different things. Um, Rodman's crazy. Pippin's contract from the first couple episodes. The the way that the Pistons walked off. And I know these things are all controversial and stuff like that. But the actual artistry of the the documentary and uh, the way that the confessions. And we talk about Harper and like when he knew that like Elo was going on Jordan. And he was like all those little details and stuff. They're adding up to make a really special documentary. But it's those things are like people are not either focusing on them or acknowledging them. And I find that's kind of like a little tragic. Those, those dudes worked hard on this doc, man. 
Oh, for sure. And I, I mean, I think part of that is is just that, you know, the it is ultimately a sports documentary. So people naturally want to talk about, you know, the, that aspect of it. But I mean, you know, here we are, we're, we're going to talk about it certainly and, and, and appreciate it. Um, you, and I, I forgot to mention the Kumodi track in episode four. Yes. I like me now. Which <laughs> <laughs> is perfect. Like, I, I mean, just what a great, great cue to use uh, in that moment. So where do we stand with um, one of the other narratives and one of the other threads uh, that we kind of touched upon in the, the first episode of this podcast, but also that Jordan was worried about, about being a jerk or like you just said, Jig, like being a taskmaster. Like there is, we should probably have a moment of silence for Scott Burrell. Uh, <laughs> we thought Jordan was dirty to Craig Elo. What he did to Scott Burrell <laughs> was like... Jordan would have just fit fine on the bad boys too, actually, just based on the oh. Scott Burrell moment. Oh my gosh, it was brutal. It was just like, it, it, <laughs> Burrell's like, M, my parents are gonna see this. <laughs> and he just uh, and he just digs in even deeper. <laughs> hmm? I mean, that you know, I'm sure there's a good portion of that. It's just like uh, you know, the vet slapping the rook in the back of the neck a few times. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it's Jordan's version of the uh, Charles Oakley slapping Pippin in the face. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask Denny, did you like Scott Burrell back in the day? Well, to be honest, I barely there remember. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, knew, I remember the name. I remember mm-hmm. the dude. Um, yeah. But in terms of his game and the impact, mm-hmm. don't recall a thing. <laughs> so, well, you have any impressions from back in the day? I just remember there was a handful of bulls, uh, like Stacey King. They were kind of just like weak. They just kind of always right. hanging around. And I'm like, it wasn't hate, but it was just like whenever they would go into a game or something, it'd be like this guy. All right, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You, ha- yeah. you had the love for the other ones, uh, like for BJ and for um, Tony and well, not necessarily Tony, but for Pippin and Horace Grant and stuff like that. I'll tell you, I did the one dude from the Bulls that I think never gets mentioned, who should get n- mentioned, is Ed Neely. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you guys remember Ed Neely. Say it, say it, say it. Oh, yeah, he was just a thick, thick white dude who kind of, he got very little playing time, but when he would come in, he'd be effective, get dirty dirty points, like rebounds, and he just like smashed the shit out of opponents. Sometimes he just lay the hammer down, and he would really be like, if they were doing plus minus back then, he would have been a, a probably a high plus guy because he was just doing all the untangible things that was helping whenever he was into the game. What about Craig Hodges? Yeah. I mean, I mean that's, and once again, this kind of goes back to the, um, what I kind of maybe mentioned in the first two episodes is like, there's just so much in like that could be told with all these guys. And, um, you don't know where it's going until we get to all, all through, get through all 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. But Craig Hodges, once again, an X Factor dude, uh, three point shooting king. Yeah. Right? Twice he won it, at least mm-hmm. twice, maybe three times. I can't remember. Yeah. I know twice for sure. He had 25 points in a row at one point in one of those uh, shooting contests. Amazing dude. What do we stand with in terms of like to go? We started off talking about the hate for the Pistons. Do you feel like the Pistons made the Bulls better? Would the Bulls narrative, would Jordan's narrative, when we look back at it now, would it be the same without the Pistons 
beatings and overcoming? Like if they just eliminated the Celtics or something, would it be the same? Where do you stand on all of this? Oh, no. I mean, you know, you can't look back, right? I mean, it, it, they were essential to, you know, making the Bulls who they eventually became essential. I mean, you know, you know how important and integral that rivalry was when they when they uh, lost to them that last time and then Jordan just started crying on the bus. Uh, I mean, and then the next day, instead of going on vacation, they all showed up at the gym mm -hmm. and Jordan starts weight training and adding bulk so he doesn't get beat up as much. I mean, that is a huge turning point and, and you can't, you cannot deny how important that that was. Uh, I think if it was a, a, any other team that might've been a little softer, uh, you wouldn't have, uh, they would not have stoked the fire the way the Pistons did. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because I mean, let's say that that Pistons didn't exist in those times. You still had the Knicks. Mm -hmm. And Knicks were pretty, they were a good group of roughnecks too. Uh, but they were, at least Jordan and the Bulls were able to handle them, I guess you can say, throughout all their meetings in the playoffs. Um, I mean, certainly it does make for just an interesting uh, story, interesting kind of epic conflict for the rise of the Bulls and Jordan. Um, but yeah, it's hard. I, I don't know. I, I, I guess there is a part of me that thinks that, yeah, they could have kicked ass even if the Pistons didn't exist in that form. When you bring up the Knicks, like the Knicks never won a championship. They were, they got <laughs> to the finals. <laughs> it still hurts. So for <laughs> Ewing. For Ewing. But the, uh, but the Pistons did win two championships and they were, they actually got there three times. So they weren't, they were two for three, which is a really solid record. And they did back-to-back. -back. The Celtics in the 80s were really good, but they never went back-to-back. -back. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the Pistons won championships color them differently if they, hadn't, like, if they hadn't won those championships, would they be a different team? Would they just still be just the bad boys? Because that's how we look at the Knicks, right? Right, right. Yeah, I guess, no, you, you make a good point. They, we would look at them exactly like we look at the Knicks. <laughs> the Knicks. <laughs> <laughs> and jig you got all emotional uh with uh was it phil jackson speaking of yeah man so when they won that game uh the first championship against the lakers uh you know it was a culmination of making the transition to that triangle offense and you know you know making sure that it w wasn't just michael that had the ball uh, the whole thing with Rodman uh, disappearing and, and being brought back into the fold uh, after Pippen gets back, comes back to the team. And there's this amazing moment in the locker room. Uh, Phil Jackson's hugging everyone. He grabs Michael and he says, you did it the right way. And God damn, that got me. That, that just <laughs> choked me out. And he's like, I love you, man. And, and it just, it was just a culmination of, the, of all that sort of, blood, sweat, and tears, and, and that discipline, uh, I think that's what gets me the most, is that, that the discipline and that mindset that it took for Michael to give up the ball. And I will never forget that game. I went pack, Paxson's uh, jumpers in that game were just um, legendary. Because I remember we're all, you know, back then, we're like, okay, well, why does Michael have the ball? 
why doesn't Michael have the ball? Yeah. And then he, he just kept hitting one and Michael would just, you know, give it up and and then it won them the game. And when Phil Jackson said, um, you did it the right way, that to me is just, that's some legendary shit right there. This is a testimony again to Phil Jackson. Like the fact that he was able to get Jordan to buy in and to like uh, pass to your teammates and stuff like that. And like, we're going to do the triangle offense. We're going to do these things because it's such a contrast in this. Uh, was it episode? Yeah, it was episode four. Episode four really should have been called the new hope because once Phil Jackson came in, Jordan initially was like, I don't want Phil Jackson. I want Doug Collins. But he didn't realize at the time that Phil Jackson was the new hope. And it's funny because in episode one, where like Jordan's like, if Phil Jackson's the coach, I'm out. Right. So you can see that circle already, like from how they've transitioned. And the fact that like Phil Jackson was able to get him to buy in to pass to your teammates, but also at the same time, like if Phil's just not here, I'm out. Like that's some serious like Jedi. <laughs> like, I don't know how you sell a superstar who can get 40 points effortlessly to like pass to like Cartwright. And that, that, that's what was such an amazing part of that story for me. And that's why I think I, it made me kind of emotional is that, you know, I think, you know, we talked about this last time where it was like, you know, was it right or wrong that Jordan was, you know, tough on, on his teammates and what have you. And at the end of the day, it takes a certain kind of man to do difficult things. And, you know, that doesn't mean necessarily the most difficult things on the outside. It's also that inside, you know, what's inside you, you know, in, in that soul. And, and the fact that he was able to change his mindset, that's changing your mind, it can be argued, is, is one of the hardest things anyone can do. And for someone like Jordan to be able to, like you said, Sammy, buy in, I mean, that's a, that's a mark of a true champion and, and that, you know, and what it must have taken to get to that point was, was something else. It, it is, a, a, it maybe it does seem like a, a true full circle moment, um, you know, that because playing for Dean Smith, it was more of a, a team system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and it's that same as a very similar relationship where you had ultimate respect for Dean Smith. And it's in, in some ways, I guess you can say when, once Jordan got into the league, because he was surrounded by, I don't know, perhaps, you know, poor coaching or poor uh, players around him, he just had to put on his shoulders. And, and he got good at that. He got good at being the ISO guy. And he kind of got drunk on that in a way, you can say. And then it took Phil Jackson to kind of remind him about the purity of the game again, just the way Dean Smith you know, played Michael. Yeah. So episodes five and six coming up are going to deal with Horace Grant. Uh, they had some of their fallout there. That's going to be interesting. Part of the fallout, too, was we saw Sam Smith uh, in this documentary, uh, this, especially in these last couple of episodes. He wrote the Jordan Rules, and he got a lot of that team information apparently from Horace Grant, or at least they believe or Jordan and Phil Jackson believe that it was Horace Grant or they believe it was Kraus or some there's some sort of like breakdown in communication. And then the other thing that's going to deal with is also the Knicks, which is also fascinating. <laughs> Every episode, somebody gets tears. So is there anything particular that you're looking forward to or like uh, in the next couple of episodes that you feel like they should focus on? 
I I think uh, there might be a little snippet about Dream Team as well. Is that the yeah. next two episodes or maybe different? Yeah. So it'd be, it'd be interesting for that, yeah. Yeah, the Dream Team stuff would be great to see more of. And then, um, and you know, so the, I think this, this these last two episodes, they, they've kind of did a lot more jumping back in time. Uh, I'm hoping they can spend a little more time in, in 98 uh, as they, you know, get get close to uh, that uh, that series. Yeah, in a weird way, it feels like they're they're skimping on the '98 footage, right? Because they have yeah. all the the modern Jordan interviews, and those are all great. But they also caught to Ron Harper, like, "How do you feel about that timeout?" <laughs> they have all this other stuff that kind of like eats up, not eats up the time, but kind of distracts from the '98 footage. And you're like, "Yo, let's get back to that." Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably they're it's they're they've got to spread it across ten episodes, so I think that's going to be their big finish. But um, but you know, you get so wrapped up in all the stories from you know the decades past uh, that you kind of forget when they come back um, that you know that oh yeah, well, this is about the last dance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, but it was a great way to kind of cliffhanger you know, at the episode, end of episode four with, uh, you know, is this the end of the Bulls as we know them uh, with their loss to the Jazz? Mm -hmm. uh, so that was a great way to sort of uh, keep us uh, hanging on. Yeah. When you see the Jordan highlights now, especially like the shot against the Lakers where he did the scoop shot and he passed from one hand to another, like that stuff is like, it's still mind-blowing. Like I saw that oh. game on TV back in the day and I, my yep. jaw dropped, and I'm like, I didn't even think that was possible. <laughs> and like, yeah, yeah. years later, yeah, I'm was... still like, I still don't think physics, like physics, that does make sense when you watch it. Yeah, nobody, I mean, even to this day that I can recall, finishes in the most dynamic way than Jordan ever did, in the most creative ways, like, like the one he did against Lambeer in yeah. that, that, I think it was what, the 1990s. Uh, 1990 playoffs where he just kind of like avoided him did a turnaround and just slapped it oh yeah behind his head it's yeah. like and that was after he um saved the ball out of bounds yeah <laughs> he, he funneled it to pippin and then he ran down yeah it's crazy nobody fin I, like i don't know can you think of any modern players nowadays who have so much that much finesse and who can kind of switch in midair no, no. I mean, nowadays they're they're all you know taking three point shots and 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 what have you. So they're not, they're not even you know even going into the lane it seems. But like Jordan, I think he just. And I think it make you know that kind of goes back to you know, you know he one something he'd said to Doug Collins back in the day was like you know during practice put five guys on me, and and you know make it hard for me. And that's that's how you forge, you know steel you know uh is just you put it under pressure yeah. and uh and you can and ultimately by the time you get to that period you're just like well i mean this guy's just uh, he's a work of art and you you brought up a good point jake about um like guys shooting so much threes nowadays i think what would be a really interesting stat i'm sure maybe somebody out there has figured it out is that i want to know how many three-point plays jordan averaged over the years per game that can count technically as three points mm -hmm. just to kind of see because all you know the guy's scoring if he's scoring 50 60 points just on twos 
right? But then yeah. it's curious to kind of compare that to, you know, uh, the pure three-point shot. Right, draw the foul, get the basket, and make it a three-point play. Is that what you mean, Danny? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that'd be an interesting stat to certainly look up because it, it's uh, it just seems like uh, the modern players just don't want to get beat up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those pretty faces that they need to post on Instagram, you know? Well, and Jordan's game, when you clearly see, like, even just the Cleveland shot in 89 and stuff like that, was clearly, um, like, a mid-court game. And that's kind of disappeared now. Most players don't really take, like, those, like, it's either, like, I think Harden either does, like, a handful of layups or dunks or all threes, and then that's it. There's not, the real estate in the middle doesn't really exist to him. Yeah, I mean, I guess of all modern players, DeMar DeRozan's the guy who hangs on most to the mid-range, mid-range game. Um, and he's really kind of reluctant with the three-point shot, strangely. Are the recollections you guys have so far for Jordan, are they holding up? Are they rem- the way you remember them? Are they kind of shifting? I mean, when it comes to the game stuff, uh, it's pretty much, you know, we've watched it so much over the years, those become become iconic sort of moments. So that stuff holds up, certainly. I'm just uh, loving hearing sort of that inside basketball stuff now in terms of what he was thinking and, you know, what was happening behind the scenes. When you kind of marry it with what ultimately became these iconic moments, it just adds this amazing new layer to the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, being somebody who was maybe, I don't know, 15 years old watching the 90s Bulls, you, your perception is a little different, right? You had the more kind of uh, like the, the Gatorade commercial, Mike, that you saw and the way he carried himself in game interviews, very professional, very well-spoken. Um, and it wasn't until much later where like, you know, with the internet, there's more kind of little things like, oh yeah, Mike was really an asshole. And so there's a, there is a bit of like evolution through time where you kind of realize, okay, well, he's, he's a bit of a hard ass. He, he gambled a lot, stuff like that. And you, you learn to accept that uh, after, I don't know, maybe a decade of all that stuff on, on the internet. And then you, now you put it all together and it, it does actually still bring you a greater appreciation of, of who he was. You appreciate the hard ass too. Mm-hmm. Whereas a kid, you didn't you didn't know how much work it took to get to that position. You just always thought that was natural talent. Natural, natural yeah. talent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's I think also comes with age when you realize that uh, you know natural talent will only get you in the door. Yeah. Um, then you got to go to work. I mean, and and that's what I love hearing and seeing now is is, is all that behind the scenes stuff where you see the man do the work, you see the process and and what it takes. So, yeah, no, I think it's, to answer your question, Sammy, it, it does hold up, the, uh, but it also has added this uh, great new real layer in terms of what it actually took to create those big, uh, fantastic moments that we remember from our childhood. So as we're wrapping up, I want to ask another question. This is obviously footage that was shot in the late 90s, and they could have released it at any time. They released it now 20 years later. Do you think the timing was right for this? Had enough time passed, or do you think it should have been released earlier? Should have been released later? Like now that we're halfway through it, more or less. Like, 
what do you think? That's a really good question. The, the best thing I, I could really, uh, I could say about that right now is this, I'm enjoying the moment. Like it's, it's really kind of hard to, it take a bit of thought to say, well, if this came out 10 years ago or what that would have, what that would have meant compared to now, um, maybe it is good timing in the sense that because there's so many of these young people and dudes who are, who are just even playing in the league right now who don't know anything about Jordan mm -hmm. and anything you know about Jordan was kind of more in the guise of Kobe Bryant, you know, but so it, it's it's some a lot some of these tweets from these young guys who are playing in the in the league now it's like just seeing their reaction to jordan and it's kind of changing the perception a bit all these people who are so pro lebron greatness goat you know conversation uh it's really kind of giving them more context somebody put it well they said well you know it's one thing to watch youtube highlights it's another thing to put it in a a store like a well-told documentary and put it all in context. Yeah, I think uh, now was the time to release it. I mean, I think 10 years ago, it would have been a different documentary. Um, you know, part of the other part of this is technology has changed a lot in, the, in that time. Uh, you know, the way you tell a story, the way audiences receive stories is, is much different than it was 10 years ago. You know, 10 years ago, a 10-part docuseries about you know, basketball may not have played as well as it does now in this sort of streaming area where people, um, you know, are hungry for uh, content. I mean, you know, in this streaming era, since Netflix and, 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 and others, documentaries have gotten a huge, huge push. Mm -hmm. uh, Ten years ago, um, documentaries had a rough go unless you had, a, you know, you were Michael Moore and you, you could get into a movie theater and do decent business, you know, it, though it just doesn't, didn't seem to be a hunger for it the way it is now. Sammy, do you know when, do you remember when the 30 for 30s began? Oh, um, uh, let me ask the internet quickly. Uh, oh, volume one was 2009. Whoa. Yeah. Didn't seem that, it didn't feel like that long ago. Yeah. So they've been doing 30 for 30s for 10 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> Well, I guess, but that changed the game for doing a documentary style like this. Like, yeah, that was Bill oh, Simmons. Sure. Bill uh, Simmons, yeah. Right. He kind of went and pitched it. That was the last thing he kind of did before ESPN fired him, or he left, depending on what story you want to believe or read. Hmm. But um, Bill Simmons, to his credit, too, he's been continuing these stories with um, HBO Sports. He signed the deal with HBO Sports. So he recently did, like, Andre the Giant. That's a really good documentary and stuff like that. But, yeah, the 30 for 30s were just designed to kind of start capturing this mythology. And, I mean, th we touched upon this, too, for the for this uh, footage that the last dance uh, shot was, like, the NBA also wanted to start capturing this mythology um, and kind of get it out there. It's interesting because one of the producers for the last dance is Peter Gruber, who is the chairman or the CEO of uh, um, uh, Mandalay Entertainment. And he's also one of the co-owners of the Warriors. And he went to the Warriors and he pitched them when they were doing their championship run. Do you guys want to do a last dance? And they said no. So <laughs> foolish. Well, while we're talking about 30 for 30, I'll, I'll make my recommendation for this week. Uh, there's uh, 
uh, one that's not basketball related is the the two Escobars. Uh, oh yeah, which is yeah. one of the best hands down documentaries I've ever seen. I have that on DVD actually. Oh, it's just phenomenal. And then there's one uh, that is related uh, is uh, directed by Ron Shelton. It's called Jordan Rides the Bus. Yep. And um, motivated by the dream his late father had for him, Michael Jordan retires from basketball and has a brief career in minor league baseball. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm sure we, we'll, we'll get to that at some point, uh, but um, if that would be uh, my recommendations. The 30 for 30s are great too for like those not, like those soccer stories. I don't know any of that stuff. Right. But it's a 30 for 30. So you're like, all right, I'll sit down. And then you end up just getting fascinated by like, I didn't know any of this. stuff. How's this real life? It's the storytelling. It's yeah. just amazing storytelling. But I think that's how a lot of people are watching The Last Dance the same way. Right. We're like, I didn't know that like Rodman was on the bad boys. And then he came in here and then, like, you know, what I mean, like there's a lot of stuff they don't know. And so that's how we watch some 30 for 30s because we're not soccer people or whatever. Football, NFL people is I think how kids are watching The Last Dance. Oh, for sure. I, I've talked to a, at least a couple of guys who are not sports guys by any stretch. Um, and uh, they'd heard me talking about The Last Dance with other people, and they were interested just by the story. And uh, they're hooked, they're watching, and they, they don't know anything about basketball. Danny, do you have any recommendations or another 30 for 30 to suggest? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing that I can think of at the moment. That's uh, fine. I'm sure. Watch Open Gym. Okay. <laughs> Which Teddy works on. Uh, I, wor no, I worked on. Oh, worked on. Worked on. That's yeah, right. Before. But, no, but I mean, that that is a real, I mean, if you're looking at uh, behind the scenes, mm -hmm. sports, drama, uh, what it's really like to, to be part of an organization and trying to win. I mean, I don't think it gets any better than that. And that comes on that would come on weekly, when the league was on. Mm -hmm. Well, in, in many ways, that crew that was following the Bulls in the '90s is, was kind of the precursor to uh, things like uh, Open Gym. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I know. I don't know if we're kind of wrapping up here. But I, I just want to get a sense of have you guys been have you been watching any of these Isaiah Thomas reactions to the He's documentary? Hard man. Yeah. He's doing some like uh, PR like work, trying to restore the the value of his, what he brings. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't that bad. Well, I think the funny thing is, is I've, I've watched a few different interviews, and depending on which show he's on, mm -hmm. his angle his angle on the whole situation is completely different. Yeah. Like he, he was on with uh, Jalen Rose and Jacoby, and he's all like, he's he's doing his bad boy thing. He's doing his piston things, unapologetic. And then he'll go on with like maybe Stephen A. Smith, uh, and then it, it'd be more of like an apologetic tone. Mm -hmm. And now there's something he sent out the um, I don't I don't know what it is I don't know if it's a tweet or if he said it on a show, but it's had something to do with what Wilt Chamberlain said to Jordan at some point in Jordan's career. Uh, Chamberlain said something like they had to change the rules for me so I couldn't dominate. They changed the rules for you, Jordan, so you can dominate. And Isaiah just kind of threw that out into the atmosphere uh, just recently. So it's kind of, I don't know, kind of funny. Did Isaiah pay a heavy price for his actions? Or was that also like the media coming down on him? Because he was obviously before social media. And so 
anything that happened, like there was an incident, for example, where um, the, I think it was the second time the uh, Pistons lost to the Celtics. Uh, Rodman said something like um, uh, Larry Bird uh, wouldn't be getting all this kind of love and attention if he was a black player. Right. You remember this? Yeah. And so yeah. it was Rodman. So they kind of just like whatever. <laughs> right. Like the media didn't really pick up on it that much. But then they went to Isaiah Thomas and they asked him and the way he responded to it of like kind of dismissing Larry Bird a little bit, but also like kind of being a little racist, it fueled that fire a little bit, too. Right. And kind of damaged him. The sports media then piled up on him. So he kind of made it worse, too. And yeah, that's that's kind of going back to what I had kind of mentioned earlier, how he was, how polarizing he was, because he was great smile, great personality, but you know there, there was something a little devious. Mm-hmm. And everybody's going to look to him because he's the leader of the team. Yeah. So, yeah. So do you think he's know. treated fairly or unfairly then? Like, was it were they too hard on him? I don't In think so. In the day or now? Both. Both? Mm. You know what, uh, like, to be honest, I don't know what it, you know, like, he'll, Isaiah would cite the example of how the Celtics walked off and didn't sh- shake their hands. Yeah. And I was a, a person who started watching basketball just right before that moment, or just right after that moment. Um, so to kind of be able to see it in the context that he sees it in, uh, I, I don't really know. I mean, I my the way I can piece the puzzles together is that Yes, the Celtics, the Sixers uh, played pretty rough back in those days as well. But maybe, I guess, there was still a level of sportsmanship that they uh, played with that maybe the Pistons didn't. I don't know if, Sammy, you know, or Jigger, if you watch back in those days in the 80s with the Celtics and the Lakers and the Sixers and how they differ from the bad boy Pistons. I remember, like, Parrish being pretty elbowy. Right. Yeah, I mean, I do remember that, but this was, um, I think the Pistons earned every every inch of that moniker. I mean, it was, uh, they played rough and, you know, they played just within the rules, uh, which were different, slightly different back then, uh, certainly, but um, I don't think they were treated unfairly. I mean, you know, Thomas did get his props for the great player that he was back then, and I think now it just hurts more because you know the times have changed and they you know people do try to you know do a little bit of revision revisionist history mm-hmm. um when it comes to that kind of thing which is natural but um you know it's you know it is what it is i think he's just gotta suck it up and and, and accept it and i think jordan was right uh in in, in his uh you know, rebuttal to that whole thing was that, look, he's, this is what he's going to say and this is how he's going to feel now. Uh, and But this is how it really was back then. And I think it is what it is. If, if you reveled in the fact that you were the bad boys uh, of basketball back in the day, then you own that shit. Exactly. And so, yeah. so, you know, take it. And, and they did, uh, to their credit, it. they did. Yeah. They did. But now he seems to be a little more uh, sheepish uh, about it, depending on, I guess, what show he's on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Jalen especially, too, because Jalen played on the uh, Fab Five, and the Fab Five, of course, played in Michigan, and they were heavily influenced by the bad boys. They grew up in Michigan. They grew up in Detroit, so they loved the team. 
and then you kind of see that play out a little bit because the Fab Five were like a mini uh, bad boys in a sense, right? So with Jalen, there's like a language there, I think, that he can kind of get away with. Like it's sure. a little wink-wink. Yeah. Wink. Uh, whereas then when it's like Stephen A. Smith or somebody else or NBA Radio or like Frank A. Solo or something, he's got to do like the apology tour. <laughs> but I think you have to kind of be uh, savvy enough to know that all this stuff is getting played on YouTube. So you got to keep your message a little consistent. Yeah. And yeah. And like, but like Jake said, you kind of like, you kind of do it to yourself when back in the day you, you called yourself the bad boys. And so, you know, well, I mean, I, I like John Sally's approach. I mean, I remember John Sally being actually, you know, sure on the, on the court, he was part of that team, but then off the court, he seemed like a really nice guy. <laughs> and you'd see him on talk shows and he was a funny guy um, and had a sense of humor about himself, which I don't remember Isaiah Thomas really ever having. Uh, and so that, you know, doesn't help him now when, you know, if he could just sort of say, yeah, you know, that's who we were. It is what it is. That's not who I am now. Um, and I think that would have been easier to accept. Um, but uh, this whole thing of kind of scrambling to to change the perception is is it's a little weak. What do you think, Sam? Is he getting a fair shake? I think some of it was unfairness. Some of it was unfairness uh, by the media. I think they were unnecessarily hard on him. They kind of, um, I mean, it was kind of clickbait before there was really clickbait, right? Like they needed to write something. So uh, it was an easy target. But I think at the same time, too, I think Isaiah Thomas, when he looks back at it, especially now when he is like in, in like with the last dance and everything going on, I think he realized how steep the price that he paid was. He couldn't do a last dance like they couldn't do a Pistons last dance with cigars and scotch or tequila or whatever. And he's like, let me tell you how I won two championships in the National Basketball Association. Like the audience wouldn't be on their side. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but they they also fully admit that they were feeding off of that. Yeah. They feeded off of being the, the guys who crashed the party for, uh, you know, the superstars in the NBA back in the 80s and 90s. That's right. Yeah, they, they would they would crash the, the Lakers Celtics party and, and they'd just be that the outcast and they reveled in that. And I think that that narrative has legitimacy. I think the NBA did like... Because it was Larry Bird and Magic that brought it all the way back. They got it out of like the 70s and like out of some of the drugs. There were still drugs, obviously, when the Jordan first episode. Uh, but like it was a lot less drugs. It was more acceptable now for like white people to come and go to the games, which is really what you needed. And then now Jordan was going to like take over and then like be this new transcendent player, especially after he won in 91. But the fact that the Pistons won in those two years probably irked the NBA a lot more. And that would have been an interesting thing to have because David Stern was missing from these two episodes. Mm. And they clearly Good interviewed point. him because he was in the episodes before. So it was Good like, point. that would have been interesting to me is like, yo, Stern, man, like Jordan's got the scotch and the cigars and he's opening and he's telling us stuff. Like, can you tell us like openly about the Pistons? Like, how did you really, really, truly feel about the Pistons? That would have been interesting to me. 
That's a true, that's a good point. They they kind of I, I don't know if they'll get into this, but but you know they had NBA essentially had decided that Jordan was going to be the future, and he, yeah. he in the line of Bird and Magic, he was the the next chosen one, and and to see how you know the league might have uh, helped in creating that uh, that I mean maybe that's an entire documentary on its own, uh, but. Uh, as with a lot of things in this one. Uh, But speaking of cigars, I I do have to mention uh, the incredible bonding that seems to have happened over cigars with this team. (laughs) Um, My favorite moment is when, uh, when Rodman knocks on Michael's hotel room door Mm -hmm. um, and you know, he's just fucked up majorly. Uh, I I think uh, it was a game where he got, um, he fouled out or something, I think, and uh, left Michael, uh, you know, on his own. And uh, Jordan said he, uh, Dennis was doing his shit. That was yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> which is just shorthand but, for like, I'm sure that was the shorthand that he and Phil had. Yeah, like, oh, he's just doing his shit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like they didn't need to explain it anymore after that. But but he shows up and Michael's like, yeah, Rodman never comes to my room, but he's there and. He doesn't say anything. All he says is, do you have an extra cigar? And they knew what was up and he knew he messed up. And that was his way of apologizing and admitting it. And the next day, uh, things are very different. Uh, it just, it's just, I love that little touch. Yeah. And you see Rodman too, when they have the Vegas footage, my man was puffing hard on cigars too. Like, so I do like that cigars keep running as like a subplot through the, but they need to have a cigar blog and like break down which ones are the which ones are which so that, even phil like, jackson even phil jackson's uh, got you know a few scenes where he's smoking some cigars too so yeah victory does that i think too this is the other comparison when we look at like these two episodes especially with like uh the bad boys and with the bulls for lack of a better like uh comparison they were both really strong teams, like the teamwork and the camaraderie and the friendship, the family, the brothers in war. Like, like they they were a team. Um, they just went about it in completely different ways. Uh, Pistons, it was like us against everybody. Uh, and it's just us 10, 12 guys, and we're going to take on everybody all at once, like a John Wick movie or something. And the Bulls were like... Uh, slowly kind of grooming everybody, getting Pippen up and running, getting Grant up and running, trusting John Paxson to make the shots, like, and Jordan to buy in. Like, you see the teamwork and how much work and effort that all went in uh, to making that happen. Uh, yeah, I guess we can kind of wrap up. Isaiah Thomas did have a line. Um, it wasn't in this documentary. It was in an interview he did recently. But speaking of the teamwork, he said that championships are won on the bus. And by that, he meant, like, all the friendships and all the stuff. And I think those are the scenes. Because um, we saw scenes where Jordan's really happy and he's gambling <laughs> with his uh, Bulls team. And then we also saw him, like, busting, like, Scott Burrell's balls in another scene. So it's interesting. And those are, those are the background stuff that I want to see more of with the bus, the airplane, and stuff like that. Because that's how you build the teamwork. The practices and all the other stuff, that's, like, normal. You can kind of sleep your way through it. But... If you're on a plane ride for two or three hours, you got to eventually talk to somebody. You can't just sit there. Yeah, that's the stuff from the 98 footage that you were hoping you'd see more of. Yeah. The camaraderie or or, or conflicts. Mm-hmm. Or more Scott Burrell mashings. 
On that note, Sammy, do you want to take us out with uh, your uh, hip hop lyric uh, for this week? Yeah, it is from Fabulous Bombs, B O M B S. I thought you could have been Jordan, found out that you weren't even Ben Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> So yeah, I will post this episode and uh, if you guys have, uh, if you people are listening, you have any thoughts or anything that kind of stood out for uh, episodes three and four, let us know. Um, I'm on social media, my pal Sammy for IG, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, my name has been Sam Yunin. DC. And I'm JT. Oh, See you man. next week, guys. I should have done initials too. All right, whatever. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sammy's good. All right, there we go. Yeah. That's it. <laughs>